You can take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Galatians chapter 5. While you're turning there, let me ask you this. If there was a supernatural, powerful movement of the Holy Spirit to happen in this church, what would it look like? What sorts of manifestations of the Spirit would we see among us? I believe that the Holy Spirit wants to work powerfully and supernaturally in your life and in Harbin's church collectively. I really believe He wants to do that. And I've been praying for supernatural manifestations of the Holy Spirit to show up in our midst, in our church, to such a degree that even those outside our church would take notice and might come to know God through what is happening here. And some of you are saying, Deemer, you are freaking me out right now. I've heard about churches that say they're really into the Spirit. I've seen some stuff on TV. You got people in these churches doing some pretty freaky things. I don't want any part of that. Where are you going with this? I'm going to Galatians chapter 5. And that's where Paul is going. That's where he is taking us. So why don't you stand with me now in honor of the reading of God's Word. And even though uh, we're going to start in, um, uh, the sermon text officially starts for today in verse uh, 16, I want to back up for the sake of context uh, and back up to verse 13. We covered these verses last week, but I think it'll help us if we start in verse 13 and read on down through the end of the chapter. The Holy Spirit says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's pray. Father, I believe that this text here that we just read is so significant, so important for the life of the church, maybe one of the most important, relevant texts that contributes to the life of the body of Christ, the, the church, your bride. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and would apply the text to our hearts. I can't apply the text with any kind of power, my cleverness, my rhetoric, my personality. I can't transform lives. I can't transform hearts. But your word can. I'm praying that your word will. 
starting right now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The book of Galatians has often been called the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. The banner that Paul waves in every chapter of this great epistle is the banner of freedom. Paul has powerfully demonstrated that the Christian is set free from legalism, which is the notion that in order for us to be in right relationship with God, we have to be good enough for God through our successful keeping of God's law. Instead, Paul says, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's about what he's doing and his efforts, not our own. And Paul's warning the Galatian churches not to go back into the bondage of legalism. He says, you've been set free from that. But Paul warns us in uh, verse 13, he says, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve or more literally be a slave to one another. Paul is saying that the people of Harbin's church are to be so committed to one another that it looks like slavery. We have been set free to serve. We have been liberated to love. That's what Christian freedom is all about. And in verse 15, Paul gives a sober warning to what will happen to any church that is not committed to slavish love to one another. But if you bite and devour one another, he says, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Paul knows that if we remove Christ from the center and place self at the center, it will destroy the church. It will become a place of Christian cannibalism. And if that sounds disgusting, that's because it is. Because there are few things more repulsive than when the church, God's people, who are supposed to be representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ, turns in on itself, against itself, and will not love others in the body. I don't want that to happen to Harbin's church. I know you don't want that to happen either. So how do we get our church to a better place moving in that direction? That's where Paul's going next in our text, and he, he helps us in several ways. First, he tells us that we have been set free to walk by the Spirit. He says in verse 16, But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, this is encouraging because it's a promise. If you walk by the Spirit, Paul says, and let me stop there for a second, quick Christianity 101 review. There's only one God, but this one God exists as three persons, God the Father, God the Son, that's Jesus, God the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, the Spirit is the one who brought you to faith in Christ in the first place. The Spirit is the one who makes believers new creations, and the Spirit is the one who continues to renew and grow believers. And the Holy Spirit's main mission is to put the spotlight on, draw attention to, and glorify Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, for example, about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16, He will glorify me. Or He says in verse uh, uh, chapter 15 of the Gospel of John, um, He will bear witness about me, both of those from the Gospel of John. And Paul says, we've been set free to walk by the Spirit, or in verse 18, to be led by the Spirit, or in verse 26, to live by the Spirit, or keep in step with the Spirit. They're, they're different word pictures. They're describing essentially the same thing. To walk by the Spirit means ordering your life according to His direction, while simultaneously being energized and empowered by Him to do it. Paul says if you walk with the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, you can self selflessly love your neighbor as yourself. You can do those things in the church that you think are so hard for you to do. Because when you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, that word for gratify carries the idea of an end goal. And the word for Desire, there in verse 16, is the word epithemia. Thumia is the word desire, but when you put that little epi in front of it, that intensifies the word, and it carries the idea of an over-desire. When used negatively in the context of sin, an over-desire is an inordinate desire. 
a desire that has gotten out of control. It's a desire that becomes all-consuming. It's, it's an it's a all-consuming longing. And so when Paul says, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, he means that those over-desires will not become an end in and of themselves. Because when those desires are the end, when they are at the center of your life instead of Christ, they enslave you, and it results in the works of the flesh. Okay, you say, great, I got that, check, walk by the Spirit, that's easy. It's not, which brings me to my second observation. Set free to fight the flesh by the Spirit. Set free to fight the flesh by the Spirit. Christians experience a deep internal struggle against sin that often seems more intense after becoming a Christian than before. In one sense, life doesn't get any easier, it actually gets harder. And that can confuse new Christians, and sometimes that battle can become so intense that it can cause Christians to even doubt their salvation. Now, if that's you, here's what's happening. Before you were saved, you didn't care that much about your sin. There was no struggle. There was no conflict. You love the darkness. You love sin. But now, as a believer, your eyes have been opened. The Holy Spirit has invaded your heart and has begun the process of regeneration, which is the act of the Spirit taking an old, sinful, self-centered heart and transforming it into a God-centered heart. And now, as a believer, you have something that you did not have before you were saved, which is a desire for God, a desire for holiness. Therefore, your awareness of, sensitivity to, and hatred towards sin has been all the more increased. But while on the one hand, sin's power has been broken in the sense that believers are no longer under sin's dominating control, slavishly serving it, on the other hand, while its power has been broken, its presence remains. And that remaining presence is sometimes called by Paul the flesh. The flesh is that corrupt, self-centered, operating principle in man that turns away from God and seeks to fulfill man's need with other things that are not God. Imagine the Holy Spirit as being on a search-and-destroy mission in your heart. His job is to go in there and root out and kill all the sin that's in there. And there's a lot in there, believe me. And your spirit-regenerated heart totally agrees with that and wants to participate in that mission. But the last thing your sin wants is to be exposed and rooted out of your heart. And so the flesh is going to fight back against the spirit with all its might. And here's the kicker. This sin is not just some impersonal force that you aren't responsible for. The desires of the flesh are your desires. You have holy desires and you have sinful desires. And Paul describes this conflict in verse 17. He says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The goal of the Spirit and the goal of the flesh is 180 degrees opposite. Remember, the Holy Spirit's main mission is to glorify Jesus, exalt Jesus, put Jesus at the center. But the flesh, on the other hand, the flesh is all about self. And that's why they are in opposition. My flesh wants Deemer to be at the center. My flesh wants Deemer to be exalted. My flesh wants to tear down the lordship of Jesus so I can be Lord. And my flesh wants to find joy and satisfaction in anything outside of God in an attempt to be self-reliant apart from God. And that warfare is happening in you too. And that's why being a Christian can be so hard. Now here's where we need to be careful. When we look at this passage, we often want to immediately skip down to verse 19. And we want to look at the works of the flesh so we can know what not to do. But if, we, if we're just focusing on do's and don'ts, we're going to fall back into legalism. That's what Paul is trying to con, uh, protect the Galatians from. He isn't just going to give them the works of the flesh and simply say, all right, don't do that. Good luck with that. Instead, in the previous verses, Paul reminds us that at the bottom of everything is our desires, our over-desires that are in our heart and in conflict with the Spirit. So you just can't look at verse 20 and say, 
oh, fits of anger, a work of the flesh. All right, so that's wrong. The Bible says, I can't do that. Okay, so I'm just going to now commit myself to not being angry. Maybe I'll, have, maybe I'll take some anger management courses. Maybe I'll get some accountability partners to help me and keep me in line, and then I'll be fine. That's not how you should think about your anger. Paul tells you that your anger comes from an over-desire of the flesh. There is something that you are wanting, and it may even be something that in and of itself is good, like respect from your spouse. But guess what? If that desire for respect grows out of hand and becomes an over-desire, if that moves to the center and that's treated now as an end as opposed to Jesus being at the center and Him being the end, then that over-desire becomes the controlling principle of your life and not Jesus. And so guess what happens when you do not get what you want? You explode in a fit of anger, punishing your spouse for not giving you what you want. You see your spouse not as a as a human being, uh, someone to be treated with love and kindness. Instead, she's just an obstacle that is preventing you from getting what you want. And maybe if you punish her enough, she'll finally get in line and give you that respect. You see how that works? It's not simply that you have a short fuse. It's that you have an over-desire for something that has replaced Jesus as the center and it's ruling your heart in that moment. It's now governing your behavior. And, and when that happens, we find ourselves in bondage. That's how sin works. And so we have now the Scripture in James chapter 1. But each person is tempted when he is lured. That's kind of a, a, a hunting, fishing metaphor. When he is lured and enticed by his own epithumia. His over-desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Too often, we try to fight against sin on the surface level. I need to stop being angry. I need to stop being greedy. But you need to understand that the battle against sin needs to be fought at the heart level. At the level of desires, the desire is the seed that when conceived gives birth to sin and leads to death. This is the conflict that is raging inside every single Christian. And so for that that hypersensitive, discouraged believer listening to me right now, know that an increased awareness and frustration over your sin is not an evidence that you are lost. It's actually an evidence of salvation. The mark of, the, of maturity is not the believer saying, Wow, I've got no more sin in my heart. I've finally arrived and made it. That, that's not maturity. That's, a, that's actually a mark of immaturity. The believer who is moving closer to God will, yes, have increased victory in his life over sin, but is simultaneously becoming increasingly aware of his sin, and you'll see sin in your heart where you never saw it before. The closer you get to the light, the more it floods the dark corners of your heart and exposes the dirt that's in there. That shouldn't drive you to despair, though. That's actually the grace of God, exposing that that sin so we can see that and root that out by the Spirit. Now, what's more, as God reveals to us the sin in our heart, it should, as opposed to despair, drive us to an ever-growing love and appreciation for the cross of Christ and our great salvation and His great love and mercy for us. Don't use that as an opportunity to sink into despair. Use it as an opportunity to praise God. Not praising God about your sin, but praising God for His great grace and mercy. Let's take a look, a quick look at, at where these sinful desires can take us, starting in verse 19, and the works of the flesh. And by the way, note, these are just examples. This is not exhaustive. Uh, he says in verse 21, and things like these. And I want to also bring your attention to Paul's sober warning at the end of verse 21. He says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, the kind of things on this list are things that send people to hell. 
doesn't mean that Christians can't struggle against these sins or that they're perfect. But it does mean that the one who is continually given over to these types of things, if his life is dominated by these sorts of things in an unbroken pattern with no repentance, he has cause to fear for his soul. So what are these deadly things? Well, the first three things Paul mentions have to do with sexual sins. And so in verse 19, he mentions sexual immorality. That term uh, comes from the Greek word porneia, where we get our word porn from. It's about sexual activity outside the boundaries of God's design for sex and marriage. Uh, The next thing uh, we see is impurity and sensuality. Sensuality has this idea of an uncontrolled wildness and lack of restraint. Now here again, here's an example where these works of the flesh can actually come about through a good desire gone bad, a good desire turning into an over-desire. Sexual desire was created by God as something good to be fulfilled in a particular context. But when that good desire becomes an over-desire and it pushes Jesus from the center, guess what happens? Adultery happens. Promiscuity happens. It's a work of the flesh that arose from the over-desires of the heart, desires that may have started good but now have been perverted. While the first category is sexual, Paul's next category here is religious. Verse 20, he mentions idolatry. We know that then and now people worship all kinds of gods, from Zeus back then to Allah today. But for Paul, idolatry was more than just bowing down to images. It was actually a matter of the heart. That's why in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul equates a coveting heart with idolatry. He says covetousness is idolatry. Now that shouldn't surprise us as we're learning now that all sin begins in the heart, including idolatry. That's not just a New Testament thing. In the Old Testament, Ezekiel 14.3, God talks about those who have set up idols in their hearts. An idol is anything that we seek to ultimately attach our sense of identity, peace, satisfaction, hope, and well-being in. That can be a statue of a god. It could be a career. That could be a spouse. Or it could be the hope of having a spouse. It can be all kinds of things that are competing with Jesus to meet needs that aren't meant to be met, that are meant to be met in Him. And when those things move to the center, it becomes a worship issue. Next on the list, sorcery, magic, things like astrology could fall in there as well. Uh, the word in the Greek is pharmakia. We get pharmacy from that because drugs were often used in the ancient world as today in the occult and and recreationally as a means of attaining some sort of altered state. Pharmacia involves a desire to control and manipulate the world, and that comes from having self at the center. The desire to have a structured and and well-ordered world is a good desire, but the answer to that desire is to rest in God's control of the universe and not to try to control it and manipulate it yourself. Look at the last two on Paul's list, drunkenness and orgies. The word orgies carries the idea of drinking binges, wild parties. The category I want to focus on the most is Paul's list uh, there in the third category. He spends the most time on this one, and that's the relational category starting in verse 20, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, uh, divisions, and envy. Now, these are the ones on the list that respectable church people tend to downplay and sweep under the rug. We are very quick to condemn and hold in contempt sexual immorality, but we aren't too concerned about envy or divisions in the church. And yet the irony is is that this is the category that more often than not brings a church down, renders it impotent, and even destroys it. And sadly, these things are all too common in churches. People dividing up into factions, picking sides, people politicking in the church and trying to, to, in a divisive kind of way, gain support for their cause, even if it means putting down others, infighting in the church, power struggles lack of submission to authority, 
or abusive authority. That happens in the church also. Backbiting and gossip. What's happening in these, these churches that are, that are assailed by those kinds of things? James tells us that in James chapter 4. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? That's the million-dollar question. There's fights and quarrels in the church. What's causing that? Is it not this, he says, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. Oh, look, there's that word epithumia again. You have over-desires going on and are taking over. Those desires have moved to the center of your heart and have become the operating principle of your life. And because your over-desires now are the end, you are willing to do anything to get to that end to gratify those desires. But when other people in the church prevent you from getting what you want, what do you do? James says, you desire, you epithumia, and do not have, so you murder. Now, James is not saying the church is literally going around with swords and chopping one another's heads off. That would put an end to the church real quick. But what he is saying also puts an end to churches in a slow and even more painful way. What does James mean? You have heard that it was said of old, Jesus Christ says to you, you shall not murder. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus isn't talking about stopping someone's heart from beating. He is talking about breaking someone's heart with words, with insults, with names. He's talking about being angry at other people in the church, being angry with them because they are preventing you from getting what you want, whether what you want is bad or good. And so what do you do? You fight. You quarrel, James says. You murder with words and slander and gossip. This happens in churches. It happens between husbands and wives. How about parents? Parents, I'll talk, talk to you for a moment. You struggle with losing your temper with your children. Don't blow it off by saying, well, you don't know my kid. Or, she just pushes my buttons. Your kid didn't make you a sinner. You're already one. You, you are responding in sinful anger because there is something you want. You are not getting it. And that thing is so important to you in that moment that you are willing to sin to get it. Or sin when you don't get it. And so you murder your child with words. And don't just blow off your anger, your impatience, your harsh speech by saying, well, that's just who I am. People are just going to have to deal with that. That's just me. Well, guess what? You say, that's just who I am. Well, who you are is pretty lousy right now. And Jesus didn't save you so that you could stay as you are. Jesus loves you way too much for that. He has saved you and he has saved me so we could be something better so that we can be conformed into His beautiful image. So, James says, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. When you talk about asking, so about praying. Our response in those situations, our, our first instinct is not prayer. We don't take our desires to God and trust them to Him, asking Him to root them out if they are evil desires, or asking Him to put those desires as subordinate to Christ if they are good desires. But of course we don't pray, because Jesus isn't at the center. Self is. And it's interesting, because when we finally do get around to praying, 
as a last resort. That's sometimes what we do, right? The last resort. What does James say when we finally do get around to praying? You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. In other words, when we do pray, God doesn't grant us what we want because we're praying out of the flesh. That there's another operating principle at the center. The thing we want is the end, and God just becomes a means to our end. And because self is at the center and not Jesus, your request is denied. God doesn't give you what you want because he's not in the business of expanding your kingdom. He's into expanding his kingdom. And so God is calling all of us to get over ourselves and get into him to remove self from the center, kill bad desires, and to subordinate all good desires to him and his will. And the good news is, is that there is power available for us to do that, which leads to my third point, is that we have been set free to bear fruit by the Spirit. Now, at this point, one might ask, especially some of you more practically-minded people, how? How do I walk in the Spirit? That sounds good, but what does that mean? Am I to work? Is the Holy Spirit to work? The answer is both. In verse 16, Paul says, walk by the Spirit. Verse 18 talks about being led by the Spirit. He leads, we follow. Let's try to get even more specific here. Another clue to what it means for you to position yourself in such a way that the Spirit works in you in such a way to produce the fruit of the Spirit is actually found a couple of chapters back in Galatians. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says to the Galatians, Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul's point here is that when they were saved, they received the Holy Spirit's ministry in conjunction with hearing by faith. That's how the Christian experience began, and that's how the Christian life will continue. The Holy Spirit always works through a believer as he hears his word with faith. And you hear God's word by getting the word of God into your mind and into your heart. In Galatians 5.25, the end of our section, Paul says we must live by the Spirit. And then Paul, and so what does that mean? Well, Paul says in Romans 8, chapter 5, that those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So there it is again. The things of the Spirit are those things with which the Spirit has told you through His inspired Word, through the Scriptures. Our minds are to be set on what He has said. And then, and then, and then what happens as we saturate our minds in what He has said and, and as we meditate on those things and we live and swim in those things in His Word, what happens then? Romans 12, 2 happens... That says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Spirit works through the Word and transforms our minds and our hearts, where we increasingly now are putting Christ at the center, killing sinful desires and subordinating good desires to Him. There is no such thing as a Christian who is experiencing a, in great degree the transforming power of the Spirit, who at the same time is neglecting the Spirit-inspired Word of God. I've never met a powerful Christian who neglects the Bible. And I don't just mean just, just kind of just reading it, da -da 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 -da, and then you're just kind of going through the motions, checking off boxes. I'm talking about somebody who is really diving into it. They are meditating on it. They're carrying it with them throughout the day, and they're saying, Oh, Lord, use your word to expose the junk in my heart. Help me to worship you more. Help me to love other people more. What does this word say to me? What does it mean to me? I want your word. I love it. It's like food. I shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. There is no powerful Christian that says, Forget that way of life. The strongest, 
most spirit-controlled Christians are those who live in this book and who are more eager to turn to this than to turn on Fox News or Rush Limbaugh or ESPN or Facebook. You fill in the blank with that, old, that, that thing in your life that is pulling you away from the Word. To turn away from the Word is to reject the main means the Spirit has chosen to work through, and it is the pathway to subduing the desires of the flesh. Elsewhere in the epistles, Paul equates being filled with the Spirit with letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. To do one is to do the other. Now, there are other means that the Spirit works through to bring change. There's prayer. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, Jesus says, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? There's prayer. There's, there's corporate worship and Christian community. So the author of Hebrews writes, let us consider how to stir up one another to love. That's what we're going for, right? We want love. We want to be a more loving church. Let's stir up one another to love and good works. How do we do that? Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. See, even in the first century, people were falling away from the church and saying, I don't need this. I'm going fishing. I'm not condemning fishermen. <laughs> I'd be so careful what I say up here. Encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. There's worship, corporate worship. But all these other means have at their center the Holy Spirit's powerful Word. You can't disconnect any of these things from the Word. Fellowship, prayer, corporate worship, you begin to disconnect those things from the Word, it all falls apart. Our Lord Jesus Christ Himself said these beautiful words, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And he says something interesting after that. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. There's a correlation between abiding in Jesus in such a way that bears spiritual fruit in our lives and abiding in His Word, abiding or living in His Word, saturating your heart with His Word, is abiding in Him. It is through the Word of the Spirit that God works to bring the change you so desperately want in your life. So Christian growth is not a totally passive, let go and let God kind of thing. There are things we do to put ourselves in the pathway of the Spirit, following His lead, but as we do so, we recognize that it is the Holy Spirit who then supernaturally produces godly fruit in our lives. That's why going back to Galatians 5.22, it's not called the fruit of you, it's called the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Let's look at these. Joy, we'll look at them real quickly here. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Legalism doesn't produce joy. Did you know that? Some of you who struggle with legalism, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Legalism doesn't produce joy. Legalism produces arrogance when we think we are doing well, and it produces despair when we think we failed, because legalism puts self at the center and makes it all about me. But spirit-produced joy has Christ in the center, and we are joyful not because of what we have done. We are joyful because of what Christ has done. From the Spirit comes peace. The Spirit focuses on Christ and reminds us that because of Jesus, we now have peace with God, and so now we can have peace with others. We don't have to have hostility and rivalries and division in the church. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, He himself is our peace, who has made us one and has broken down in his flesh, in other words, through the cross, he's broken down the dividing wall of hostility. The Spirit produces patience in us as he reminds us of the great patience that God has had with us. Oh, how patient God has been with me. 
as we set our minds on the things of the Spirit, we'll eventually come across Romans 2.4 that teaches us that God's kindness, His undeserved kindness, has led us to repentance. And then we hear the Spirit say to us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Be tender-hearted, Harbin's Church. Be tender-hearted. Forgiving one another, it says, as God in Christ forgave you. A fruit of the Spirit is goodness or integrity. It means being the same man or woman in every situation, not being a hypocrite, living out what you believe, really believing what you say. Faithfulness, to be utterly reliable. Anything less should have no place amongst the people of God. Gentleness. Oh, how many Christians need to lean into the Spirit's work all the more in regards to gentleness. We all know Christians who are raging bulls through china shops. Maybe you're thinking, I'm actually one of those bulls. Do you know that you don't have to be that way? You don't have to be that way. You don't have to be stuck in non-gentleness. Did you know that you don't have to operate in a way that people fear you, but instead actually will come running to you and seeking you out? Don't blame your lack of gentleness on your personality. Lack of gentleness is a sin. Did you know that? We don't think about it. Sin, sexual immorality, stealing, murder. Lack of gentleness is a sin. It's from the flesh, and it's meant to be crucified. If you are going to not have gentleness with anything, have it with your flesh. Mortify the flesh. Kill the flesh. Crucify the flesh and its passions. Gentleness. Consider our Lord Jesus Christ when you consider gentleness. The one whom you are supposed to be conformed to. The prophet Isaiah says this of Jesus. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. That's beautiful. Self-control. What would it be like to not be governed by every impulse that comes into your heart? To not blurt out hurtful words in the moment? To respond to criticism in a calm and steady manner? That's how Christ was. When all seemed out of control, He did not lose control, but entrusted all to the Father whom He knew controlled all. And of course, at the top of Paul's list, and I save the best for last, is love. That great word, agape. It describes a selfless kind of love that pours itself into others for the benefit of others. If you say, I can't love that person who's giving me a hard time, they don't deserve my love. I'm just going to cast that person aside because they are of no use to me. Now, now you may not ever say anything like that in your with your sweet little lips, that verbatim. But we act that way sometimes, don't we? There are times where we feel this pull to shun a person in the church, to be cold to a person in the church, to not treat that person as a brother or a sister. Why? Why do we do that? Because of the desires of the flesh, because of controlling over desires. Maybe there's a desire for self-protection. Maybe there's arrogance, and we want to preserve our sense of superiority by not associating with that person. Maybe that person has failed us, disappointed us, over and over and over and over again, and it is time just to cut them off. If you say that, if you do that, you are being about as anti-Christ as you can get. What benefit were we to Christ? Did we deserve his love? Did we deserve his compassion? And yet, he had compassion on us. On the cross, he took sin's curse upon himself for wretches. I said that word, wretches, like us. Christ, as our great substitute, endured God's judgment for our sins in our place and suffered the hell that we deserve, and anyone, anyone, no matter what they have done, 
how bad they have been, how many times they have spit in Christ's face and have blasphemed him and mocked him and grieved his heart and let him down over and over and over and over and over and over again. Any such person who places their trust in Christ's payment then has Christ's payment credited to their account and they are fully forgiven. The sins of the believer are now paid in full. That's agape love. That's what our Lord is calling us to. Harbin's Church, hear the words of your Lord and Master. A new commandment I give to you, he says, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Do you catch the, the motivation behind this concern of Jesus? We are to love one another not just for our sakes. It's not just about our little club, but also for the sake of the world. There's more at stake than you could possibly imagine when we consider our call to love one another. I get so weary of these churches that are chasing after all these strange signs and wonders as if that is an evidence of the Holy Spirit's work that the world needs to see. People rolling around on the floor, barking like dogs, falling over, seeing gold dust and angel feathers, or whatever is going on in these churches. And I say to these churches, you are setting your sights way too low. Those aren't the mighty works that we need, and those aren't the mighty works that the world needs to see. Forget the small stuff, ecstatic experiences, that's too easy. Pray bigger. If you want the Spirit to really move in the church, pray for reconciliation between people in the church. Pray that marriages would be raised from the dead in the church. Pray that Christian parents and children would have their hearts turned towards one another in love. Pray that people in the church who may be at odds with one another would drop their swords and stop the bickering and stop the coldness and the factions and the rivalries and the murderous words and that we would be kind and tender-hearted, forgiving one another as Christ forgave us. If you want miracles, Holy Spirit miracles in our midst, pray for those things. And when they happen, the world will see the world will know that we are Christ's disciples. Why? Because we look just like Him. If we live by the Spirit, Paul says, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let me show you a more excellent way if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Shall I put a few other things in there? If I, have, if I have all my theology down pat, and I'm a Reformed Calvinist, and have not love, what profit is it? If I'm involved in this ministry or that ministry, if I'm standing up here on the pulpit, and I have not love, what profit is it? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it'll pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. 
When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your holy and inspired word. Father, I have no power right now to make happen what I want to see happen in this church, which is a supernatural, mind-blowing, unexpected, miraculous explosion of Holy Spirit-produced love taking us to greater heights, heights that we have never known in this church. There's so much at stake. There's our personal lives at stake. There are our relationships in the church at stake, but there are missiological implications to this as well as we think about how we as a church can better position ourselves to reach the world for Christ, it starts in here, in this community. So help us with that, Father. We have all fallen drastically short of these things, and I am at the front of the line. So forgive me, Father, for my failures in these areas. Holy Spirit, come and produce more of that fruit in my own life. In the lives of the leaders of this church, starting with us, help us to pave the way, Father. But not just us, Father. All who are in here who would name the name of Christ. You want to bear fruit in all of us. So let it happen. And do what I cannot do. In Jesus' name, amen.